I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear of being under a curse or you hear being cursed. Perhaps um, it's something like, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or uh, some show or book like that that comes to your mind. Maybe it's more informed by Disney. That's probably in our house than, than it is by anything else. And so you have some sort of you know, uh, Hollywood idea of a curse. The Bible paints for us a very different picture when it comes to being under a curse, to being cursed. It might not look as immediately fantastic as it does on the television or as it sounds in a book. The person beside you may be experiencing the curse, and so it might not look as immediately fantastic, but I assure you it is more terrible it is devastating and being under a curse. Scripture speaks from very beginning of being under a blessing or being under a curse. If you remember, God created Genesis 2 and 3 as he creates man. And immediately after he creates man, he sets that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in their midst. And they disobey the Lord and partake of that. And immediately there is a curse pronounced in Genesis 3. The serpent experiences that curse. He's made lower than all of the other creatures. He used to crawl on his belly all of his days. And he experiences the curse that there is going to be ongoing battle and enmity between the seed of the woman and between him. Lady Eve experiences that curse and that she will will rise up and kind of have a natural rivalry against God's design for her. And that through the blessing, the promise of childbirth, great pain will be multiplied in that. Adam experiences the curse. If you remember, his work is no longer going to just be a, a, a blessing and a fulfillment to him as it once was. It will be filled with thorns and thistles and turmoil. The amount of work will, will never feel like it measures the, the fruit and the gain that you get from it. And from toil and sweat until you return to the dust of the ground. But really, it's central to all of it. At the heart of the curse is this, is that they are expulsed from the garden. They are kicked out of, they're expulsed from this garden sanctuary. They are kicked out of the presence of the Lord. He drives them out of his presence, of this area of blessing, and in, out of the garden and into the curse, as it were. And God continues to develop his scripture to us through covenants. And in covenants is the idea of blessing and of curse. We see it all the way in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, with the covenants laid out for Abraham of blessing and of curse. We see it through the law given to Moses of obedience leading to blessing and disobedience leading to curse. By the time you get to, to Deuteronomy, as Moses is, is there in the plains of Moab, penning this, this final word to the next generation that is going to enter the promised land, and he starts penning for them blessings and what it means to be blessed by the Lord and that disobedience and the cursing that that brings. And it is this text that Paul is quoting in Galatians 3. He looks back to Genesis or to Deuteronomy 26 and 27. When Paul were to speak of the curse, he looks back there that, that anyone who, who doesn't fulfill and live by all of the laws of God, every command that is given to them, the person who 
who doesn't fulfill that holy is, is living under a curse. But before that statement in Deuteronomy 27, a whole list of things are given what it means to be cursed. For the one who is, is sexually adulterous, who doesn't follow the, the plan of the Lord, cursed is that one. For the one who is dishonest in their business practices, taking advantage of their neighbor, taking advantage of others, cursed is that person. The one who is, is violent, violent in his outbursts towards others, cursed is that person. The one who is dishonest, who would lie to a husband or to a wife or to a neighbor, cursed is that person. The one who isn't fighting for, for justice, but instead is oppressing the fatherless, the sojourner, the widow. Cursed is that person. The one who doesn't care rightly for their spouse. The child who doesn't honor their parents at all times. Cursed is that person. To, to experience God's curse. And he says this, as he continues, he goes, Cursed are you when you are in the fields. Cursed are you when you are in your home. Cursed are you when you are journeying on the road. Cursed are you when you are upon your bed, when you are in your kitchen. Wherever you are, you are, you experience the curse of the Lord because you've been expulsed from the presence of the Lord. You've been, you have been moved away from the blessing of the Lord, the blessing that it is to be in the presence of the Lord. The blessing that is promised to the sons of Abraham. And so this idea of curse is developed and it is, you will be expulsed from the blessing. You will be expulsed from the presence of the Lord. So by the time we get then to Galatians chapter 3, we've been looking now for some time at justification our relationship to the law, faith that is required. And there are three statements, really, that I want to highlight from our text. It will serve as our three points, kind of putting in it then, then this context of curse. First is this, is that legalism brings the curse. Legalism brings the curse. There is no... Greek word necessarily for legalism. So you're not going to see Paul use that term. You're not going to see it show up. But what you do see is Paul speak of the law in the terms of, of works of the law or misuse of the law. And I think what the curse here is, is what he's, he's speaking to with the law is not that in and of itself there's something cursed about it, but those who seek righteousness through means of the law. That is what brings the curse. Those who are seeking justification, those who are seeking to enter into the presence of the Lord, to have right standing before God, to, to know forgiveness, those who are seeking that justification through any means, through faith in the accomplishments of Jesus Christ, and starting to substitute it with works of the law, cursed is that one. They are under the curse. Legalism brings the curse in that way. You see, you saw it earlier in Galatians, if you remember, with Peter. And as he is interacting with the Gentiles, and when Paul gets on him is when he starts taking these dietary restrictions, these dietary rules that, that belong to the law, and he starts imposing them upon the Gentiles who are there and then judging them by them and avoiding company with them. Because 
he's feeling that pressure of they're not they they need law to be righteous that they need to add they they need to do something to be right with the lord and paul rebukes him heavily for that <clears throat> So when we speak of, of works of the law, when we speak of, of cursed works of the law, it doesn't refer to, to just obedience to the law that would come through faith, that would be empowered by the Spirit. But it is substituting the law for the work of Jesus Christ as the grounds for our righteousness, as the grounds for our acceptance before the Father. And so Paul has developed that, hasn't he? Who has bewitched you, he asked. You started with faith. We painted this picture of Christ and we saw Him clearly. And yet now you have moved from resting and trusting in Jesus Christ, trusting in His work by faith, accepting those promises. And instead you have moved and you have placed yourself under the law. You want something more measurable, something more tangible, something you can control to measure your righteousness by. The point of it is I want to gain merit. I want to gain righteousness. And by doing this, the exact opposite is happening. You're not gaining blessing, you are gaining curse. Darkness, judgment, expulsion from the blessing, the presence of the Lord. Listen to Calvin, it explains it this way. He says, in saying that it's not, it's not law... And in faith, but it's trying to seek righteousness through the law. He says, yet it does not follow from this that faith is inactive or that it sets believers free from good works. For the present question is not whether believers ought to keep the law as far as they can, which is beyond all doubt, but whether they can obtain righteousness by works of the law, which is impossible. You notice that in verse 10. It's, it's not failure to keep the law that's the curse. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. All who are relying on the works of the law for their justification. Paul will quote from Habakkuk 2.4. He, he uses that text in Romans. He uses it in a few other. Driving home that point that he's been driving home now for so long. And that is that the righteous shall live by faith. He continues on in verses 11 and 12. He says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. He doesn't even necessarily take time to develop it. it he, he says, if you, if you are going to be righteous by the law, then you have to keep all of the law all of the time. It, you know, and then he just says, it's obvious no one is reaching that point. <laughs> he doesn't even develop. Of course we know we don't keep the, all of the law perfectly all of the time. And that's exactly what they've done. is that they, They've come in by faith. They, they, they've hold of the work of Jesus Christ. But now they want to take the law and just dabble it in and sprinkle it in. And he's saying, no, you have to, to pick your, your lane. <laughs> is it righteousness through Christ or is it righteousness? the law and we know that no one is declared righteous through the law that's why he continues there in verse 12 but the law is not of faith rather the one who does them shall live by them that is that that faith and legalism operate in two very different ways 
You, you enter into this relationship with the Lord through faith, and then you live, you walk by faith. That is the life that you live. It is the one who has been crucified with Christ, as we saw earlier in Galatians, who, who now is, is live, life that he now lives, he lives in Christ through faith. The one who is seeking to, to bring in the law as his form of righteousness, well then that will be the way that you must live, and that will be the way that you judge you are judged, and that will always bring a curse. He's saying you're cursed because if you're trying to add law, if you're trying to bring it into the grounds for your righteousness, then you have to live by that in order to obtain righteousness, and that is impossible. We should hear this message, and there should be a seriousness for us in it, because there are two ways of living here. Life under the blessing or life under the curse. And it's not just showing up to church. It's not just doing a few things and like, this is the group that is blessed. And this is the group that is cursed. It, it is those who only boast is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Who the life they live now is by faith in the Son of God. Who, who aren't resting on trying to bring in anything else that they can merit, they can accomplish. It is those who experience the blessing those who began by faith but then have turned, who have been bewitched, whose gaze has been stolen by something. They, they sprinkled in some law, they sprinkled in some tradition, they, they've begun to rest on something else for their righteousness now. It, it's another path, and that path is a pathway of curse. You can't bring them together. Either you live by one or you live by the other. And so legalism brings the curse, he says. Secondly, is that we are redeemed from the curse by Christ becoming the curse. You realize what a beautiful statement that is. One author says, in, Paul, in this, Paul summed up all that can be said about our redemption. We are redeemed from the curse by Christ becoming the curse for us. As we look at, at Christ, as we look at the the events of the gospel, the cross of Christ. The scripture teaches us about the cross in many ways. The gospels give us that narrative, the, the story of, uh, of the passion of Christ leading up to the cross and the events of the cross and the crucifixion and leading on. But there's didactic literature about it as we look at Paul and, and the other instruction in the New Testament that, that teach us elements that come from the cross. There's all kinds of images and there, there's metaphors and there's this mosaic that comes together that something, the simple message of the gospel and yet so many pieces that, that, are, that fit together that just are never ending depth and beauty of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. We look at forgiveness and we look at substitution and we, we look at different parts of it and part of what he accomplished on the cross for us it has to do with the curse, and that is that he became a curse for us. He took on himself the curse. We've been talking through numbers, teaching through numbers in Sunday school the last few weeks. If you can remember in that, the Lord organizes his people in the wilderness. So he's delivered them, and now they're, they're living this life, and they're 
working their way through the wilderness to God's promised land. And he organizes them around himself. He, he sets the, the establishment of the tabernacle right in the center of the camp. And his presence dwells on that tabernacle. The cloud rests on it. When the cloud moves, the tabernacle moves and everyone moves with it. The Ark of the Covenant is there and it brings, it leads the people of the Lord. And so as he puts his tabernacle right there, then he puts the priests and the Levites around his tabernacle as a mediator for his people. And then spread throughout the camp, sort of equal distance all the way around the tabernacle, he organizes the people of God around him. And their life exists with the presence of the Lord there as their protection, as their guide. What makes them God's special people, the presence of God with them. That's the place of blessing. And then he sets up for them sacrifices. How, how then do they live with their God? The priests and Levites come and they offer these sacrifices and the, the Passover lamb. And then we're introduced in Numbers to this idea of, of the scapegoat. And you, you remember the scapegoat, one of the most significant sacrifices. They have a goat without, without blemish, without spot, is brought before priests and, and, and he lays his hands on that goat, and, and the sins of the people, as the priest pronounced it, are, are placed onto that goat. All the sins on the back of the scapegoat. It works in tandem with the Passover lamb, but it's a little different. It, it's not just the substitutionary death, but now it's the, the expiation of, of sins, of the sins of the people on the back of that goat. And then you remember what happens with the goat. He is sent outside of the camp. He is kicked out into the wilderness. He is cast outside of the, the temple and God's people that surround it. He is cast outside into the darkness, into the wilderness, into the curse. Taking all of that sin, he becomes a curse and he is expulsed from the presence of God. Then you get to Hebrews, and as the writer of Hebrews then would develop Jesus Christ and his work as our sacrifice, he takes that imagery of the scapegoat and he places it upon our Jesus Christ. That he would suffer outside the gates, that he would leave Jerusalem, and he would make his way outside of the gate. And he would go to the hill Golgotha, and there he would be hung on a tree, cursed as everyone who hangs on a tree. Our sin poured out on him, becoming a curse for us. For we could never merit our own. He merited this perfect, righteous life. And now our sin poured on his back. Joni Erickson Tata is a writer. Maybe you've heard of her, read some of her stuff. She is a quadriplegic. When in her teen years, I think it was, she was in a diving accident lost use of her arms and legs, and she's had years and years now of ministering to the church as a powerful speaker, powerful testimony, understanding of God's grace and God's work. She wrote a book called When God Weeps that speaks to this idea of, of Christ becoming the curse for us. It's a few paragraphs, but it is worth listening to it. The face that Moses had begged to see, was forbidden to see, was slapped bloody, the thorns that God had sent to curse the earth's rebellion now twisted upon his own brow. 
on your back with you. One raises a mallet to sink in the spike, but the soldier's heart must continue pumping as he readies the prisoner's wrist. Someone must sustain the soldier's life minute by minute, for no man has this power on his own. Who supplies breath to his lungs? Who gives energy to his cells? Who holds his molecules together? Only by the sun do all things hold together. The victim wills that the soldier live on. He grants the warrior's continued existence. And the man swings. As the man swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the, the medial nerve of the human forearm. The sensations it would be capable of. The design proves flawless. The nerves perform exquisitely. Up you go. They lift the cross. God is on display in his underwear and can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odor began to waft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being. The living excrement of our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father, he must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so, never felt even the least of his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The son does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. You have ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name. Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You who molest young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, found false religions, traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate, I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. The father knows this, but the divine pair have an agreement, and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The father watches as his heart's treasure, the mere image of himself, sinks down into raw, liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. 
Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun, the sun stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down or reply. The Trinity had planned it. The Son endured it. The Spirit enabled him. The Father rejected the Son whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. The Father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. He who knew no sin became sin. He became a curse for us. You look at that picture of the cross, and Paul says, it blows my mind. How do you see that? How by faith you rest in that from your righteousness, and the next moment you turn aside and think, there's a new way. I can produce something in myself that can merit God's, God's satisfaction, that can merit a standing with him. Paul says, no. Those who seek righteousness by the law, they live, they die by it. That is a cursed life. They will experience the curse. They will not experience the blessing, the presence of the Lord. Paul continues in this section, says, Curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. It, it, again, he's quoting back from Deuteronomy again. There are many laws in the Old Testament where the death was the penalty for that, typically by stoning. So they would stone them. And some of the, the worst of that, they would take that person who was dead and they would hang them, place them on a tree. And it would be a display to others of God's divine wrath and God's divine judgment against that sin. It was so offensive that they were, had to be taken down before nightfall. And you see that at the cross as they rush the feet down before nightfall. It changes a little as we, we work through redemptive history. The time you get to New Testament it is a form of execution by the Gentiles. A very public, very embarrassing, a very cursed form of execution. So Paul quotes that there. It's Jesus' sacrifice. Cursed is everyone who dies on a tree. Not only did he pay the price for our sin, but our sin was laid upon him. The curse for us that we might know his righteousness. Finally, we, we'll just touch on this as Pastor Adam will be developed a little more as, as we go through Galatians 3. But that is the blessing of the Spirit. So, cursed is everyone who looks to the law for their righteousness, who looks to anything for their righteousness besides Jesus Christ. But verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see that Christ just didn't like become a curse, end of the story. He became a curse for us. That those same promises, that blessing of an internal and eternal inheritance, adoption into the family of God, into the presence of God, promised to Abraham, which was Abraham's, as we saw last week, by faith. It is ours, the sons of Abraham, when we receive it the same way, by faith. The promise 
of an eternal inheritance, adoption into the family of God, and that promise is sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit given to us that empowers us to then live and walk a life of faith. Bearing fruit, obeying through faith. Jesus would say in the New Testament, that, as in the Sermon on the Mount, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of God. Then he develops it further. Okay, you don't murder. Well, I say, even if you have bitterness or hatred in your heart to someone, you're guilty of murder. Don't commit adultery. Well, I say, if you have a, one unfaithful, lustful thought or imagination, you're guilty of that. And the point isn't that he's just raising the bar saying, be better. The point is this, that's an impossible bar for you. So then when he begins his Beatitudes, remember the first one? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who recognize, those who come and realize I have nothing in my hands I bring. Looking to Christ, resting on him, to them belong the kingdom of God. Then the blessing is given, this blessing of the Spirit that unites them to Christ, that empowers them in their life of faith. Paul begins this whole section, what's bewitched you? There was a point when Jesus Christ on the cross, vividly portrayed, captured your heart, captured your mind. There was no work of the law that did that. It was by faith in the promises of God that it gripped you. that way, why are you trying to finish some other way? What has stolen your mind? What has stolen your, your vision and your gaze? Look back to the cross of Christ, the gospel. That is your only boast. That is your only hope for righteousness. That is your only hope for access to the presence of God from beginning until end. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us right now. Lord, that spoke into that moment, the Judaizers and all that was taking place, and so freshly formed church after the work of Jesus Christ. And it speaks to us now because we're still easily bewitched. We're still... We're still geared to legalism and the law. Lord, might Jesus Christ and him crucified be continually set before our hearts and our minds through your word, through this church, through our time individually spent in the word, encouraging one another in prayer, that that would always be our boast, that would always be our hope. We'd find our blessing there. I'm going to have to worship.